Books. This is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz, editor of the print journal and founder and regular contributor to the podcast. Today on the show, we talk with Pung Shepherd, author of The Book of M. Our discussion covers her first novel, Memory and Identity, and her advice for beginning writers. I'm joined by host Allie Ryan, with guest editors Sam Steinke and Lily Mayberry. We hope that you enjoy this talk. Pong Shepard was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, where she rode horses and trained in classical ballet, and has lived in Beijing, Kuala Lumpur, London, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and New York. Her debut novel, The Book of M, was chosen as an Amazon Best Science Fiction and Fantasy Books of the Year, and has been featured on The Today Show, NPR on Point, The Guardian, io9 Gizmodo, Sci-Fi Wire, Book Riot, and Elle Canada. She is a graduate of New York University's Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program, and a winner of the Elizabeth George Foundation's Emerging Writers Grant. Thank you for joining us today, Pung. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you switch between the viewpoints of two males and two females regularly throughout the Book of M. On our show, The Pub, actually last week, we recently discussed how there were a lot of articles concerned with how to write female characters and how writers in general tend to struggle with that, especially male writers. But you don't see a whole lot of articles specifically addressing how to write male characters. Did you approach writing your male and female perspectives and characters differently? And if you did, what advice would you give? Or if you didn't, either way, what advice would you give for creating complex characters that the audience can relate to? Um, you know, I'm not sure that I actually consciously approached writing the male and female characters in my story differently. Um, mm-hmm. What was more important about each character for me than their gender was their personality, actually, mm-hmm. um, which is always different for every single character um, because, you know, every person has their own unique characteristics and way of thinking. Um, for example, there's one character in the story who's, like, much more brave and impulsive, and then there's another one who's um, more of a stickler for rules and doesn't really like to take risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those, um, to me, those kind of traits really informed what those characters did at certain points in the story and how they would react to certain things kind of more than their genders. Um, and as for, you said, advice about creating characters? Yeah. Like, and for instance, did you ever base any of your characters on people that you knew either? Like, did, is that how you were crafted characters as well to make them a little bit more cl- complex? Did you ever consider the people you know to do that? Uh, I don't. I think some writers do, but for me, that's too hard because then it doesn't feel like my character. It feels like that person. You know, oh, and, and then you kind of have to like, model them after them. Yeah, yeah. And so it feels like because that person isn't in that story, I can't like make them react realistically or um, you know logically. So uh, my characters were all just, you know, they kind of just came to me and they told me who they were and then I let them you know, do what they were going to do, which I think that would be my advice for creating characters, um, you know, that feel realistic or that the audience can relate to because, um, you know, sometimes you have this really great idea about where you you think the story's going to go, where you mm-hmm. want it to go, but it would force your character to do something that is very not them. And then I think when that happens, readers can feel that you're just making these people kind of into cardboard cutout mm-hmm. yeah. rather than like having them react in really logical, consistent ways like a real person. Were there 
And on that idea of like making a character do something, were there ever times where you realized that things couldn't go the way you wanted them to go because of that character's personality and like it would feel like it was the wrong thing to do to do that? Yes, totally. And that's so frustrating. But, like, you just have to, you know, because then if you force it, that's also so unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. So in previous interviews, you talk about how Zero Shadow Day gave you a real-world connection to your story. And Mm -hmm. that made me think about, like, what other connections there are to, like, shadows. So what other fascinating cultural trends related to shadows did you discover in your research? And did you use any of those in how you, like, crafted the whole, um, like, disease of the forgetting or how you... Um, made the world react to the forgetting? Um, well, actually, you know, the, the biggest one that I didn't realize, I just, like, completely missed it until I turned in my first draft, and my editor was like, you know Peter Pan, right? Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And I said, yeah. And so Peter Pan is in there now because we realized that it's, like, that's a, a huge story that's related to Shadows, and, um, and it ended up fitting really well. And that was kind of a, that was an afterthought? It was, well, I don't know. I just, you know, sometimes you're so deep in your own thing yeah. you just don't remember. And, I, you know, I'd, I had done some research, and I came across um, the legend of Surya, which is a story in the Rig Veda, mm-hmm. um, which is an ancient Vedic text, and then that got in there. But, like, somehow just when I was Googling, Peter Pan didn't come up. I don't mm-hmm. know why. And then mm-hmm. I just totally, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I have a great editor. She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So along that same thing, what suggestions do you have then for weaving reality with fiction most convincingly? Um, I think, well, I think, first of all, it just has to fit. It's got to, because when I found Zero Shadow Day, it just kind of, it felt like so magical and so (laughs) right. And so I went Mm -hmm. with it. But there were definitely, I'm trying to think of something that I tried to shoehorn in and we ended up cutting it. Um, I can't remember the moment, but there were definitely other things that I thought would seem really cool because they were real and then what it ended up doing was just kind of taking the story off track mm. rather than you know uh, making it better and so were there uh, any of those I, oh sorry uh-huh. were there no, no, any okay. of those things like that that you are you still have moments where you're like it would have been really nice to get those in like do you have any examples um I don't let me think <laughs> sorry do I? Was... No, no, it's okay. It's like, because, you know, you have so many drafts, and you're like, what What did I cut? <laughs> you no longer um, remember what was in all of them anymore. I, th- I think uh, I had a lot more stuff about trying to weave in folklore about animals and shadows specifically, uh, or like, um, you know, sometimes trickster gods in certain religions have oh, or don't have yeah. shadows. And, it, yeah, it was so wonderful, but it really... You know, the book is so big and so sprawling anyway, and adding that in, it it was um, it was really, uh, like, interesting and colorful, but it was just kind of pulling the story in a totally different direction, so we ultimately had to cut stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested because earlier you uh, said something about adding, like, magical elements to your story, and on page 324, you said that there were crocodiles the size of cruise ships and that's not the first time that you (laughs) kind of like changed reality like that um such as with the statue of liberty passage early on in the book and Mm -hmm. i was wondering like how you came up with ideas to warp reality in those ways because that's just so interesting (laughs) um well the so the magic in the novel revolves around the idea that if a shadowless person forgets something they're able to um, 
kind of shapes the world through the loss of that memory because the world also ends up forgetting what is and isn't possible around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in most of the instances in which the magic occurs in the book, I was just thinking about um, the characters and what, uh, if they encountered something and they didn't remember what it was, say, what their most likely reaction to it would be. Oh. Like how they um, would create that reality, yeah. what reality yeah. would, so would like, make the most sense. Yeah, so like okay. we are all afraid of crocodiles, and if you're mm-hmm. afraid of something, it can sometimes seem much bigger yeah, than much it really is. Yeah, much bigger than it is. Yeah. That's an awesome yeah. concept, actually. Yeah, like that's... The idea of like it's turning our <laughs> fear into this thing that's bigger than it actually is, because that's how fear tends to work anyway. Mm-hmm, yeah. So with the changes in reality, when those events happen, is that just a singular, shadowless person causing that to happen, or is it like a majority, like with the Statue of Liberty? In New York, when I was reading that passage, I had thought it was because a lot of shadowless people lived in New York or were uh, congregating around that area. Is it like yeah? A- so yeah, so some of the memories definitely can be um, affected by a group of people misremembering the same thing, um, and and it also can be individual people. But the way that I had imagined it worked was whoever was closest to that thing that's being forgotten they would have more power over changing it than you know someone else so like um you know you and me if we both lost our shadows and we started forgetting things and you forgot who my best friend was probably nothing's going to happen to her because you don't know her that well but if i forgot who my best friend was she's in a lot more danger that kind of ties to the philosophical sort of moral connection too right when is it max who plays the game early on with um, Ori. Is that who plays it? Where they say the, they, have a, the they have a button. And, and oh, they, the million dollar. The million yeah. dollar button, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a chance that, or not a chance, someone will die. It could be someone close to you or it could be somebody mm-hmm. you met on a bus stop. Would you push it? <laughs> and how many times right. would you push it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's a, it's really interesting to think about because there are, you know, there are billions of people in the world, but, um, you know, it, it it's wrong no matter what. Yeah. If you're still killing somebody, but it's more or less scary depending on how likely yes. you think of someone you knew. And yeah, actually, that's really close to that. Like the philosophy question. I don't even remember what it's called, but like the thing where you have to choose whether you're going to pull the lever depend and like kill the more people or kill less people, yeah. and like whether you're closer oh, or farther, the- whether you directly have to choose it or whether it's something else that can choose it for you, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a trolley problem, right? Yes, yeah. that is it. Yeah, I remember <laughs> yeah. the name of it. Yeah, we, we interviewed, I don't know, it's just kind of making me think, we interviewed um, Joe Haldeman, <clears throat> um, who wrote The Forever War, and uh-huh. he was he's a vet, and he was talking about the difference between um, being a, a sniper and being able to just pull a trigger from afar versus having to fight someone kind of hand-to-hand. The mm. difference between the two is like, super personal and kind of intimate when you have to get close when it's someone who's close to you even physically kind of thing yeah yeah it would it seems like it would be very different yeah Yeah. um so a little while ago you actually touched on the legend of surya a bit and Uh i was wondering um what inspired the overall premise of your novel and if it was specifically related to that legend at all um, it wasn't, the legend didn't inspire it. I think it really what kind of got me 
started writing. Well, okay. I mean, first of all, I did. I I was trying to write something with shadows and with magic, uh, and I knew that's what I wanted the book to focus on. But I was having trouble finding a way to get the story rolling, and I didn't really have my characters yet. And it mm-hmm. was Zero Shadow Day that was the thing that made me mm-hmm. realize, like, oh, this okay. is how it starts. It'll start exactly real, except just when everyone else's shadows come back, mm-hmm. one guy's won't, and then it'll start okay. spreading. Yeah. Um, but since Zero Shadow Day is in India, and then the first man in the world to lose his shadow permanently is an Indian man, mm-hmm. um, that got me more deeply into researching, um, you know, like Indian myths and their folklore and stuff about shadows. And that's how I came to the legend of Surya, and it just fit yeah, so definitely. well. You know, it, oh, yeah, yeah I it mean, just, fit well enough that, you know, mm-hmm. I personally like thought, well, did this, you know, did this shape like the whole thing? I mean, that's how well you integrated mm-hmm. it, so... It, um, well, I mean, I think it ends up, it, it probably did shape a lot of it because I found it pretty, I think I was still in the first draft when I found it. So it was, um, you know, when you find something early enough like that, it starts mm-hmm. to kind of inform the rest of everything. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, you're able to work around it for longer, too. So that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, so something else that I was curious about when reading, um, on page 463, um, the amnesiac mm-hmm. kind of, explains how Max's tape recordings were so helpful in the end. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering what made you decide to have Max do recordings in the first place and then how you ended up having them utilized in that way. Um, So I, when I started writing the first draft, it was really mostly just like a story decision rather than a symbolic one. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the way that the novel set up, the majority of it is told in the third person and then only Max's sections are told in first person right. sort of like we're we're listening to her voice on the recording rather than seeing her from the outside the way that we see the other characters mm-hmm. um, and I I ended up doing it that way because since she's the only one she's the only main point of view character in the novel who's actively losing her memories mm-hmm. um, I wanted readers to be able to kind of get into her thoughts and feelings more directly and intimately mm-hmm. than if we were doing third person um, but then as I was working, uh, I realized that because Max has this tape recorder kind of into which she's pouring all of her memories, that um, like as I got to the end, I realized that it, it kind of becomes more um, like of a symbol and a question. Like at a certain point in the novel, the tape recorder t- technically has more of Max's memories in it than Max has right. mm-hmm. in herself. Yeah. So like which one is more which one is more Max? Yeah. You know, do your memories make you who you are, or are you still yourself without them? Yeah. Which is actually really cool when you think about the fact, or I thought it was really neat that taken into consideration and calling this the Book of M and the last chapter being called M, and this is all about this M who's no longer quite Max, but no longer who she was before, and she's not even certain, so she has to make this new identity of this combination of memories and the last person she was, and this new person she's trying to create. So I thought that was a really cool way to approach it. Like, the only actual, like, perspective we are given is the one of M, because in the end, it becomes all M, and so we get her perspective, but not anybody else's, and this book is about her transformation into M in a way, too. Like, that's kind of how it felt. Yeah, it really, um, it's, always, it's always interesting when I do these interviews and people ask me all about Ori because they think he's the main character, and I'm like, oh, but he's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Max, it's M. He's yeah. Character. yeah. yeah. Um, so when it comes to memory and personality change, who is more of a person, um, 
the recorder or Max, who is that person. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, per, a very particular sentence that stood out to me because I'm a CNA. It was on page seven. Today is the day that 70% of their victims forgot their first degree relatives. Um, to me, given the clinical nature of that statement, have you thought about the ways that the Book of M comments on diseases that affect memories, such as dementia? Um, you know, honestly, when I was writing it, I was so deep in the story that it didn't occur to me. But then when I went back, you know, and was kind of reading it from above and revising, like, you know, of course, um, uh, I kind of became more conscious that the novel could be taken um, as a comment on on diseases or conditions that affect memory. Um, but I would say, though, that since the story, it is a fantasy and it involves, like, much more magic than science, that I'm not aiming to kind of specifically represent or speak for anyone suffering or caring um, for somebody suffering from those conditions, but more, um, I kind of just hope that readers whose lives have been touched by any of those conditions can kind of take whatever they personally want from the story, whether it's like just the adventure or the love the characters have or, you know, something more. And then another question for you. Uh, so we have these characters called the exterminators who go around hunting down the shadowless. On mm-hmm. page 242 is when we get, like, our first glimpse of them. Did you base this group on any, like, historical ones similar to that fashion? Um, I don't think I based the exterminators on any specific group, but there were definitely, um, I mean, there definitely have been plenty of groups like them throughout history, and I was kind of more focused on that. Um, Like, you know, that when you have people who are either too powerful to be constrained by society's laws or are in a situation where there aren't laws anymore, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people become stronger and better, and they do good things, and some people do exactly the opposite, Mm -hmm. and that's where Many of the characters in the novel change their names um, or lose them. In fact, you know, the, the title is uh, referencing <clears throat> a name and sort of a rebirth through renaming. Uh, the amnesiac is grateful when another patient stops using his birth name. And in many ways, Marion is lost to Max when she loses her name. Um, Ursula gives up her name and the names of the others um, during their trip to New York. And when Dr. Zade and the amnesiac uh, meet the shadowless in New Orleans. They like they rename they literally rename them. I think the first one they rename like Michael. Um, yeah, Michael. Can you talk a little bit about the import- the importance of names in the novel and and naming? Yeah. So um, I, I think that they names. I didn't realize it was going to go this way, but the names ended up becoming I think a pretty big symbol in the book because they they're also very closely tied to the same questions about identity and selfhood that, that memories are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our names, our names are usually the first thing that other people learn about us. Or if they ask you like, who are you? You don't reply with a description of yourself or a list of your memories. You just, mm-hmm. you say your name, mm-hmm. which kind of becomes a symbol for all of that, for your memories. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think names ended up becoming another way that I could explore a character's sense of identity and self. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they also became narrative markers for how the relationship, like each shadowless relationship with their memories, you know, do they, do they still have their original name? Have they forgotten their original name? Is somebody trying to give them a new name? 
Did they choose a name for themselves? That kind of thing. So when you name the chapters for um, the amnesiac, you call them he who gathers. Why did you decide to go with that name for him specifically, since he had so many different names that were used? Yeah, I think it was just the coolest one. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was actually so. It was actually the first name for him that I thought of. That actually, was the way that it's also the first name that was used in the book, and so that's why I was wondering if maybe that was related to it. The first time when you run across the names, the first name like that you run across is he who gathers. Too. Like, oh, it is? I'm so glad I did that. Like, I, had, like, I went through and I checked because I was curious about it. So, and I actually, I went through and I checked like every chapter, how many times you had everybody speaking, but, or like how many times you had each person in each chapter, like being the main focus. But that one I noticed, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if that was why you named it him that, if it, because it was the first name that popped up for him, or if it was like symbolic for some reason, beyond like the fact um, that he who gathers. Yeah, no, I think it's. I think it was the first name I thought of him because it is what he does. You know, that mm-hmm. that ends up being his his mission in the book. Um, and yeah, so that to me, that's kind of like his truest name. And so I think that's why it comes up the most. The one that I kept thinking about was, I don't know. We're, um, have you ever read a book called the The Lathe of Heaven? By Le Guin. Oh, I love that book. Mm-hmm. I love that book. Every time I saw Ursula, and then, and then the concept of this, this. Uh, reshaping the world i kept thinking did she name did she like give a nod to ursula Le Guin by naming character <laughs> ursula funny. i actually did you that did yeah that's what it's for she's a, she's one of my favorite authors yeah and me too I, you know yeah, like a too. personal hero so yeah. yeah i wanted to you know it's my first novel and she was the, like such an inspiration, such a huge part of why I started and then kept writing. So yeah, I did name the character. After yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. And everyone here who hasn't read The Lathe of Heaven, you should read it. <laughs> it's a novella, but but yeah, it's a phenomenal book. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, all right, about halfway through the novel, um, Hamu tells the story of Sanjana to the amnesiac. Uh, afterward, he tells Hamu that he doesn't have like the same kind of story for him. Um, and he, but he was honored to hear it. And so Hamu tells him that it's enough that the amnesiac um, just listen um, and will remember um, after he cannot because uh, he'll still be able to sort of make new memories. Um, can you talk about the way that the novel addresses the need to pass along both like personal and then cultural memory? Yeah. Um, so without spoiling anything, I think... Um, Hemu kind of, he's really getting to the heart of um, kind of that message there. Because a lot of what Hemu says, none of it is like directly the answer, but a lot of what he ends up telling the amnesiac in their interviews, I think has an effect on the ending of the book and the way that the magic about memories works and starts to kind of, um, you know, possibly save or change people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Yeah, I would say that the end of the novel relies pretty heavily on the idea that, that shared memories or, or passing memories are pretty powerful things. And I think it is true because we, as humans, do share and pass on memories, um, oh, kind of both on a personal level and a societal level. You know, like we have stories that we pass just through our families and then we all have, um, you know, history and religion and culture and language that we remember as very nice big book. groups of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think in the beginning of the novel, the characters are all mostly 
just concerned with protecting their individual memories yeah. and they're not thinking any bigger than that, you know, because they're afraid and they're just trying to survive day to day. Yeah. Um, but as the story progresses, uh, some of them realize that it might not be enough. And, you know, that by all trying to remember the same thing or contributing to these larger shared memories, the, the everything just becomes stronger rather kind than weaker. Kind of like with um, the Paul's book, right? The what? I'm sorry? Kind oh, yeah, yeah. With Paul's book, yeah. How they're yeah. all searching for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're going to a whole through a whole war for that book. Yep. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I mean it. It's it becomes at first. I sort of saw some of the like I'll be alive. I mean, it's sort of an an old idea, right? I'll be, I'll be as li- alive as long in some way as long as somebody can remember me. But then, you know, the way your book deals with it, it becomes bigger than that. You know, a much scarier idea is when, you know, our cultural meta narratives and and cultural tales and stories die off right right yeah and i mean that kind of effectively does happen yeah for a large portion of the world because everybody does withdraw from trying to keep those bigger memories alive and they're just focused on themselves and i think that's why new orleans as a city ends up surviving better than most places because they're all of them are trying to hold on to something bigger than just each of their memories yeah on page 39, we learn that um, after Zero Shadow Day, uh, Hemu uh, Joshi share, uh, stayed shadowless and free. Um, that sentence had me thinking about the way that um, some in the novel view memory as a form of constraint. Um, transcendence view the loss of it as divine. Um, and of course, we're not supposed to like side with them, but <laughs> there's a certain pull for all the shadowless um part of that pull is magic but it seems there is a sense of freedom too right yeah i think um i think it's kind of one of the central conflicts of the novel between the the people is that divide between you know half of the characters feel that it's better to remember and keep things the same and the other half of the characters start to feel more and more like it might be better to forget or um or at least just embrace whatever happens after. And, um, you know, for, for some of the shadowless, some of them, I think, find that new power and kind of the potential for a new life. Um, and if they shrug off that old one, and I think it, it, it's too strong to resist for some of them because I think we can all, it's like a feeling we can all relate to, you know, because even if our lives are great, we sometimes can't help imagining what it would be like to be able to, do or be something completely different and um you know even if it's just a daydream but i think the novel kind of explores that question more directly like if you really could completely change everything and become a totally different person would you actually and and if you did that what would you be giving up to do yeah i think oh I was just wondering if what would you do (laughs) if if, if, if you had to choose which one would you do um, I think if it was just about forgetting, I would definitely not want to forget, yeah. that, you know, yeah. um, but I think the part that would make it complicated for me is that if you are, if you lose your shadow and you start to forget things, the magic that you're able to do, I think would be very <laughs> right. hard to resist. So, yeah. <laughs> I was going to um, And I think especially even if, not even if you're making a huge decision, but if you're like, I'll just do this one thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Like, then it just, you know, like it's easy to build yeah. on that. So that's why it becomes yeah. like something that snowballs. 
But I was also going to ask, um, so is it also in some ways memories are like your responsibility to what's happened in the past and how to learn from that? And sometimes it's easier to let that responsibility go rather than hold on to it hmm. because it's hard at times to even know that you have those responsibilities or you've had these things that you've had to deal with. I think so. And I think the, the shadowless that end up in, there's like a, a group of shadowless that end up kind of in a, a road trip situation mm-hmm. trying to get to a place that they think may help them remember. And as they kind of get further away from their home and possibly closer to this other place, you can see that some of them, uh, you know, want to remember or want to keep their memories more than ever. And some of them start to feel like maybe I actually don't, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually, so that relates to why, so whatever the reason, whatever happens to Max's body, I don't know, whatever, it's okay. But I feel like the idea <laughs> that Ursula taking that recorder is showing how much Ursula herself valued these memories because they clearly matter to these other people's. And so even though she can't remember her own name and like all these other things, it really struck me that Ursula still was like, I'm taking this recorder that obviously clearly meant a lot to this other person who is in my trip that I can't even remember. So that, yeah, yeah, like that shows like even with I felt like that that was an interesting thing because it was showing how important memories are to people who don't even share those memories when there's somebody yeah. else's memories, even that that yeah. Ursula would value them that much. Yeah. And I think um, because at some point in the book, she makes a promise to Max. She says, like, yeah. no matter what happens, I will get these there because I know that you mm-hmm. want to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And finally, we always ask at the end um, of our interviews, do you have any advice uh, for beginning writers? Um, Yeah, I do. I would say, I mean, it's hard to give really specific advice because everyone's process is so different. But I think in general, um, if you can get to the end of the first draft as fast as reasonally possible, that's good. (laughs) Because it's like, so novels are really, you know, especially if you're writing novels, because they are so long Mm -hmm. and complicated and it's really easy to get stuck in the middle and give up especially mm-hmm. because you're afraid that the draft is really bad which mm-hmm. it probably is because the first draft um <laughs> but when you make it to the end you can always make it better later because yeah. you can like you can always fix something but you can't fix nothing mm-hmm. so you just gotta get to the end yeah. yeah yeah well thank you so much um yeah. for talking thank with you. us we really enjoyed it oh, thank you yeah i had a great time thank you all right thanks Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening in on the discussion today. All of us at the pub would like to once again thank Pung Shepherd for talking with us. We'd also like to thank the University of Wisconsin Parkside and WIPZ FM 101.5 for allowing us the use of the station. If you'd like to hear more of our interviews and general podcasts, or if you'd like to pick up a print or digital copy of our magazine, please check us out at straylightmag.com where you will find fiction, poetry, art, and more podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for regular updates. Thanks for downloading and tuning in to The Pub.